0: I'm going to be reading from Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. Acts 5 says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back? some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, <clears throat> they buried him. Now there was elapsed about an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to me, her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Holy Spirit of the Lord to the test. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things.
1: That was my sister uh, who read scripture to you, in case you didn't recognize her. Uh, So happy to have Debbie and her husband Stan here today, uh, worshiping with us. She has been one of the most influential people in my life, and I dearly love her. To this point, up through chapter 4 of Acts, the church has seemed picture perfect, hasn't it? Uh, The church was growing. People were coming to Jesus every day. The members of the church were of one mind and spirit. They loved each other. They were giving to each other. They're meeting the needs of the poor. At the tail end of chapter 4, Barnabas has sold a piece of property and he's brought the proceeds to the apostles and, and he's told them to distribute the money to anyone who has need. This church in the first century seems to be a great, great church the Holy Spirit is working strongly in people's lives people are witnessing with boldness the apostles they have already been thrown in jail because of their preaching of the gospel and that has not slowed them down a bit it has not intimidated them even a little bit. In fact, if anything, it seems that it has fueled their fire with more boldness. And they felt privileged that they were able to suffer in the name of Jesus. It really does seem to be a picture-perfect church. And I I know sometimes in my preaching I can come across that way. That the early church just had it all together and, and the church today needs to be like that first century church in a a lot of ways that is true we need more boldness don't we we need more of, of the filling of God's spirit we need his unity among us we need to be loving each other with with a great love we need to be having more of an openness to to helping the poor so granted there were a lot of qualities in that first century church That we need to have today. And yet, this passage that that my sister Debbie has read to us, Acts chapter 5, it's a good reminder to us that the early church was not picture perfect. That's because there were people in the church. And any time that there are people somewhere, you're going to find things not always together. You remember the fellow who said to his preacher that he was going to leave this church and he's going to look for the perfect church. And and the preacher responded to him, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) Imperfect people lead us to imperfect churches. And to be sure, this early church was not picture perfect. And the story about Ananias and Sapphira, that it really should not surprise us. In fact, this is one of the things that I really appreciate about the biblical writers. They tell us the truth. They do not cover over the sins of God's people and and make them somebody that they are not. And that is true throughout the Bible. For instance, Abraham. We think of Abraham as being such a great man of faith, and yet the Bible doesn't gloss over the fact that Abraham had his issues. He had a lying problem twice, we learn in the, in the book of Genesis, that he told a lie about his wife. Noah, we think of him as such a great man of faith, and he was. he was. He was amazing in his faith. He built that ark and worked on it for 120 years. And, and as, he was, as he was building that ark, he's preaching that long, and he doesn't have one convert, and yet still he is faithful in his preaching. And yet, do you remember what happened as he stepped off of the ark? What, what happened in his life? He, he, the the scripture is very clear that he got drunk. Gideon, after his great victory over the Midianite army, he what, what happened with him? He fell into idol worship. This kind of storyline is true amongst so many biblical heroes. For instance, Jonah. Jonah preached one of the greatest revivals maybe in the history of mankind, and yet when the people of Nineveh repented and they gave their hearts to, to God, Jonah got mad. He was sulking. He was angry with God because he didn't think these people deserved God's mercy. And the same storyline is true even into the New Testament. Peter denied Jesus three times. John, the apostle of love, had a temper problem. The biblical writers are very forthright with us about people who are in the Bible. The truth is there has only been one person who is perfect and that is our Savior Jesus. The rest of us are marred people and certainly those who were in the pews of the early church were marred people. They were not perfect. And the text that has been read today just helps us to remember that fact. I am quite certain that this story of Ananias and Sapphira are in contrast to the story of Barnabas in chapter 4. Barnabas, you remember, has sold a piece of property and he has brought it to to the church. He's brought the proceeds to the apostles. He's given that money to them saying, use it however you wish to meet the needs of the poor. And apparently, Barnabas has received some accolades for his generosity. He he did not give his money for that purpose. He gave his money to the glory of God. But in what he has done, the church has been inspired by that. The church has been encouraged. And they have... They have applauded Barnabas. They have lifted him up as, as a leader and, and they've been encouraged by him. And I'm thinking that Ananias and Sapphira are sitting back and they're observing this happen. They're seeing the accolades that has come to Barnabas. And they say, you know, that, that, that's pretty nice. We kind of like that for ourselves. And so they come up with a plan. The text is very clear that they are in this together. They too had a piece of property that they could sell. They sold it, and what they did differently than what Barnabas did is they brought part of the proceeds to the apostles, but they led them to believe that they had brought all of the proceeds. And then they were sitting back welcoming the limelight that would come their way you see their motive for giving was very different than Barnabas's motive the problem was not that they had to give the whole price of the land please understand that they did not have to give the whole price of the land in fact they didn't have to give any of the proceeds that they received from the land Peter makes that very clear. He said, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, they had the right to do with their money what they wanted to do with it. The problem here is they were being dishonest. They were lying to the Holy Spirit, Peter said. uh, They were pretending to be somebody that they were not. And all of a sudden, this plan that they had in motion backfired on them. I want us to see some lessons from this text this morning. And the first lesson is simply this. There is a bit of doctrinal truth that we need to grab a hold of. And the doctrinal truth is this, God and the Holy Spirit are one. They are different, and yet they are one. Did, did you notice that when Peter called Ananias on the carpet, he first said to him, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he later goes on to say to Ananias, You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. And I I want you to see what he is saying here. The connection between God and the Holy Spirit. To lie to the Holy Spirit is the same as lying to God. They are one and the same. Did you hear me say that? The Holy Spirit... And God are one and the same now don't ask me to fully explain this to you it is much bigger than what any than what any of us can understand this is bigger than what my pea-sized brain can handle and put into words to you and I hate to burst your bubble it's bigger than what your brain can handle too Isn't this true, though? If we could understand everything about God, then he would no bi- be no bigger than what we are. The fact is that he is much bigger than we are. He's much greater than we are. That me- it makes more sense that we cannot fully comprehend him. We cannot fully explain him. He is here, and we are way down here. How he created the world with the spoken word is way beyond me. I cannot explain that to you. How he parted the Red Sea for his people to walk through on dry ground, that's way bigger than what I can explain to you. How he brought down the walls of Jericho with with a trumpet blast, that's above my thinking. I could go on and on with examples of that nature. So to fully understand and explain to you how God and how the Holy Spirit are two, and yet they are one, and then you throw Jesus into the mix as well, that's above my thinking thinking and yet i believe it because that is what the bible teaches we call that the doctrine of the trinity and it is throughout scripture and here's a question i want to ask you how important is doctrine M- maybe i should define the word for you first Doctrine is simply the teaching of God's word. It's the summary of what we believe about any given subject. For instance, there is the doctrine of what we believe about God. And that particular doctrine would come from all 66 books of the Bible we learn about God in the book of Genesis. And then you move to the book of Exodus. And you may learn something different about God in Exodus than what you learn about him in Genesis. And, and we could go right on through every book of the Bible. And, and you take the sum total of those 66 books and what you learn about God in all of that vast scripture. That is what we would call the doctrine of God. And then you, you would have what we would call the doctrine of Jesus. And you have what we would call the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And, and, you, and then you would have what we would call the doctrine of baptism and, and the doctrine of faith and works. And, and you have the doctrine of heaven and the doctrine of hell. There is all kinds of, of different subjects in the Scripture that as you take the sum total of what Scripture says, it's the doctrine of that particular topic. And again, I ask you, how important is doctrine? I submit to you this morning that doctrine is very important. There are many references to sound doctrine in Scripture. And there are many references warning us to guard against unsound doctrine. And one of the jobs of the elders of the church in Titus chapter 1 is to protect the church from unsound doctrine. The elders are to make sure that the teaching from the pulpit, the teaching that is going on throughout the church is in accordance with Scripture. I can tell you for sure that in God's mind, Doctrine is very, very important. Therefore, it should be important to us. Let me read to you some scriptures that give support to this. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, brothers, brothers and sisters, right there... That scripture from 1 Timothy 4:16 that scripture is enough to tell us that doctrine is very important. But there are other scriptures that we can look at that say equally the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 2 through 4 says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound Doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Chapter 2 of Titus, verse 1, says this. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. One more scripture. 1 Timothy. And you may notice a lot of these scriptures that I'm reading to you are from Timothy and Titus. The reason for that is Paul, the aged evangelist, is giving instruction to Titus and to Timothy who are younger than him. He is mentoring them in the ministry and he is telling them, you be careful with your teaching. You make sure that your teaching is in accordance with sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4 says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and not, does not agree to the sound doctrine or the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. There is indeed a sound doctrine and it's important that we have a good grasp of it. And the idea that a lot of folks have today, of, of th- that doctrine is not important, just, just give me application to the Word of God. That's, that's what I'm interested in. Don't get all hung up on, on this and that and, and, and doctrinal stuff. Why, why, that's a thing of the past. Let's just see how the Word applies to our life today. That's unbiblical thinking. Yes, application is very important. And if we didn't have that, we would be missing a very important component of the scripture. But don't leave out the importance of sound doctrine. We cannot underestimate the importance of doctrine. It is important to God, and it should be important to us. Now, I kind of feel like what I'm jumping on today is, is a bunny trail, but it is a very important bunny trail. It's been one worth going down, and it all stems from Peter's words to Ananias, which Were if you have lied to God, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. This is sound doctrine, that God and the Holy Spirit are one and the same. And yet, they are two. Let's look at a second lesson from this text. And this really gets us even more into what's happened here in the early church. The second lesson is this. God hates dishonesty and hypocrisy. I mean, just ask Ananias and Sapphira about that, and they will testify to you that that is true. They devised a plan that was dishonest, and they pretended to be somebody that they were not And they paid for it with their life. The truth is God hates dishonesty and he hates hypocrisy. And we can back that up by looking at so many other scriptures. One of the most obvious scriptures would be that of the Ten Commandments which God gave to the people of Israel through Moses. The Ninth Commandment being what? Thou shalt not. Lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. And over in the New Testament, that commandment is repeated. Colossians 3 9 says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. As Christians, we are to live. Differently than how the world lives. We are to live by a different standard. We are to lay aside the old self. My daughter Rebecca works a job there in Joplin where her boss just recently told her to lie in a certain situation. The boss said to her, I do it all the time. Rebecca said, I can't do that. We live by a different standard, don't we? Our God calls us to be honest. On the job, he calls us to be honest at home with those whom we live with and with those whom we love. He calls us to be honest on our tax returns. He calls us to be honest in our business dealings, in our personal relationships, in our recreation. This is one of the things that I love most about refereeing upward basketball. If, if I didn't see who the ball was knocked out of bounds by... All I have to do is ask one of them on the court, one of the young kids on the court. I said, uh, "Did you knock the ball out?" Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I did it. <laughs> I mean they're so honest. And I'm thinking as that happens, I, I did that twice yesterday as I was refereeing. You're saying, Kevin, you're you're supposed to see things better. <laughs> it's upward basketball. I'm not being paid to do it. I'm just a volunteer referee, but I know I can get most of those calls right because the kids on the court are going to help me. <laughs> I, our college guys and MBA guys could sure learn a lesson from our little kids about that, couldn't they? You watch, you watch those big games on, on TV, and they knock a ball out of bounds, and they point the other direction immediately, don't they? God calls us as His children to live by a different standard than how the world lives. We're to be honest. Do you know what the book of Revelation says about this very subject? Chapter 21, verse 8 from the New Living Translation. It says, but cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, the murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Lying will lead you to a place that you do not want to go. But not only does he hate lying, he hates hypocrisy. We know that from how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. I read just this last week in my personal reading from scripture, Matthew chapter 23, seven times in that chapter, Jesus says to the Pharisees, woe are you, woe to you, And every woe had to do with their hypocrisy in one way or another. Interestingly, I looked that same chapter up in the New Living Translation just to kind of try and understand that word woe better. And the New Living Translation treats that word this way. What sorrow awaits you? God hates hypocrisy, and certainly there is great sorrow awaiting the person who is play-acting in his faith. The hypocrite pretends to be one thing when really he is something different than that. He pretends to be spiritual when really he's very worldly. The hypocrite talks one way on Sunday and then talks a different way through the week. Entirely. The, the the hypocrite presents himself one way on Sunday at church, and then through the week, a completely different person in personality and character and reaction and deeds and words. He's... Cleaning the outside of the cup and the dish, Jesus said, but inside he's full of robbery and self indulgence. And from our text in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they're seeking the praise of men rather than seeking the praise of God. They pretended to be great givers when really they were great liars. God hates dishonesty. And hypocrisy. And these are two things that we must guard against in our life. Let me give to you a third lesson from the text God longs for the church to stay pure. The church is his bride. And he longs for his bride to stay pure, just as a bridegroom would hope and and expect for his bride to stay pure for him. Let me read to you from one of my Acts commentaries about this passage of Scripture that has been read. And and here's the question that probably a lot of you may be asking. And, And the answer is given. Why was the penalty on Ananias and Sapphira so severe? Here's the answer, according to this commentary. They were the first hypocrites in the church. And God intended it to serve as a warning for coming generations. Hmm, wow. It's just simply a reminder to us that God hates hypocrisy. And he wanted to use this situation in the early church to warn every generation afterwards how much he hates Hypocrisy, And the warning seemed to have an effect in the first church. Verse 11 says, and great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard of these things. It takes me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, where Paul writes this. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Think about that the things that happened before. Paul says those things happened so that we could learn from them, that we could be warned, that we could see these as examples to us and learn from them and not walk down the same pathway. And, and I'm asking to myself and to you too, are we heeding to God's warnings? Now, here's another question: Does this mean that God is going to strike us dead the next time that we're hypocritical? No, hope not. <laughs> because if that were the case, I could, you could lose me, a pre- your preacher, this afternoon. <laughs> Lightning would strike, and you say, "Oh, there went our preacher." Because it's that easy to be hypocritical, isn't it? I can preach a sermon to you on Sunday morning, and by afternoon time, I've transgressed my sermon and what God has been warning us about. It's just that easy for all of us to be hypocritical. Thankfully, his grace covers us when we are hypocritical. We need to turn to him in repentance, ask him to forgive us of our sins, and try and change our ways. Certainly that needs to happen. But I am thankful for his grace because I am hypocritical in a lot of different ways. I don't mean to be, don't want to be. It is true, though, God wants his church to stay pure. Are you, in your personal life, helping the church to stay pure? Are you helping the church to stay pure? And how about this question? How are you going to be remembered after you're gone? What legacy are you leaving behind? For a moment, I I would like a little feedback from you. I want to mention a biblical character, and I want you just with a word or two or a short phrase. I want, and you you have to speak up loud so I can hear you. I want I want us to think about the legacy that these people in Scripture have left behind. What do you remember when I say Abraham? Hmm? Trust. Trust. Okay. Yeah. He trusted God completely with his son Isaac. He's sacrificing his only son on the altar. He's known as the the father of faith. Okay? Uh, What about Moses? What do you remember? What legacy has Moses left for us? Ten Commandments. He's the lawgiver. God's deliverer. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10 says that he knew the Lord face to face. Wow. That's quite a legacy. He was the most meek, gentle man, the scripture says. That's Moses. That's a pretty good legacy. What about Daniel? Prayer? Did somebody say prayer? Yeah, he was a prayer warrior. To such a degree that he got thrown into the lion's den. And he trusted God through that time. And God saved him. How about David? A man after God's own heart, the scripture says. Now, as I said to you, these folks were not perfect. Because we know David wasn't, Moses wasn't. They had their times of short falling. They sinned. And yet their overall legacy is one that is positive. They have left a legacy of faith for us. And we could go on and on with different biblical characters. The legacy that they have left for us. How about, how about these two? Ananias and Sapphira. What legacy did they leave? Liars. 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 Hypocrites. Greedy. We're talking 2,000 years have passed since their story. And still to this day, that's what they are remembered by and for. And that's what they will be remembered for, for every generation to come. They will be remembered as people who were liars and hypocrites and full of greed. And I'm thinking in my mind, wow, what a sad way. What a sad legacy to leave for those who would come after you. That every time your name is thought of or mentioned, that you would be thought of as a liar and a hypocrite. And I tell you, I don't want to leave that kind of legacy behind. Do you? No, you, you want, just like me, you want to leave behind a legacy that's positive. You want to leave behind a legacy for your kids and your grandkids. You want to touch the kingdom of God in a positive way. And you know what? That doesn't happen without determination on your part and the grace of God. But it takes a decision on your part of how you are going to be. And that's my challenge to you as we close today. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira and leave behind a legacy that's going to be negative. Instead, you determine by God's grace in your life and his power in you to leave behind a legacy that impacts your family to the glory of God and helps the church be a pure bride. Let's pray together. Oh, God, help us. And I'm, I'm just asking every person right now to pray silently about their legacy. That they'll leave behind a, a legacy to the glory of God.